City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. OK, acres and acres of tar and cement and you're on City Limits. It's the second Wednesday of the month, the second uh, show of the year, in fact. And um, today... Happy New Year! Happy, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that was Meg Kimber who said that. I'm Kevin Healy and... Uh, Meg, it's, uh, she's, Meg just said uh, she wished me luck because of the first time she's been on the panel for a while because she hasn't been in for a while. But uh, I said, well, it's appropriate because the old song, Wish Me Luck As You Wave Me Goodbye, because sadly it's Meg's last program on, for the time being anyway. I'm sitting oh, yeah. in Meg, is it not? Uh, That's correct. I'm taking a hiatus. Um, right I flagged it. We've got a chat. Um, me and Zeb and Karina have a chat uh, on a yeah. thing called a mobile phone. Kevin, I'll explain yeah, it to you right, later. Okay. It yep, it's not yep, important. Yep, the yep. main thing is we can text each other. And I texted and I said, who's a One Direction fan? You know the band One Direction? Yeah, I do. I know oh, do of you? It. I know of it. Okay, okay. I'm going to pour a cup of tea. You want a cup of tea? Yeah, I love one. And... Um, and they were like, <laughs> Karina says she do, she knows One Direction. They're quite famous, like the most famous band in the world. Yeah, Karina oh, wants, wants tea. tea she wants time. tea. Yeah, she doesn't care about One Direction. She wants a cup of tea. Right, um, anyway, they took a hiatus, Kevin, and they um, that was about ten years ago. So I said, I don't know if it would be a hiatus like One Direction took, but no. I do need yeah, to. I mean, you mightn't be that famous. Because <laughs> you are going into music, aren't you, to work? So that's <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I'm, um, I'm helping a neighbourhood house up in Newlands, so Coburg area. Um, we're running a program to support people to get into their local choirs. And um, I'll be doing some music teaching with some preschool little babies and and small children. All right, well, we're going to miss you here, but it, it, yeah. it's, unfortunately, there's sadder news this morning because um, well, <laughs> no, 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 surely not. Well, there is actually because okay. uh, a, lo a long-time activist, Harry Van Morse, who oh. um, was one of the people I knew so well in the anti-war movement, but he, he yeah. had a place in he lived in a community in Carlton. We had a community in Parang called DMZ, Demilitarised Zone. And, mm -hmm. Cool. And I've known Harry ever since then. I knew his father. I went to his father's funeral as well years mm. ago, Albert Van Morse. Uh, Harry, Harry died late yesterday. Um, mm. He's been ill for some time. He, mm. um, he had a triple bypass a while ago, but mm. uh, anyway, he died late yesterday afternoon. I'm so sorry um, to hear very that. sad news. And there'll be very. more on that, I guess, around the place. Cause, and in recent years, of course, Harry worked for the Western Region Environment Council and um, mm. he worked very closely over many years with uh, one of our regulars, Helen Van Vandenberg. So, mm. um, and Helen, in fact, uh, I knew about it earlier, but Helen rang me last night to tell me as well. So, uh. Yeah. Uh, so that's sad news about Harry because he's, uh, he's been around a long time and his father, Albert, in fact, was also, as I mentioned, Albert, Albert worked, well, when I was on Fitzroy Council, Albert ran the Fitzroy Community Youth Centre, which was a council body and uh, mm. I knew him very well indeed. So, mm. um, I've known them a long time, yeah. mm. so that's that's a sad start it's to the sad program. News. Yeah. But on on the program today, we've got first up. We're going to be talking to Julia Stockard, who we talked to before during the AGL proposal to, for Hastings and the the um, the liquefied natural uh, natural gas project. Mm. And we noticed last week. You probably noticed a ship came in exporting hydrogen mm. uh, as a trial run. Um, 
And I, I thought, well, why wouldn't it require an environmental effects statement like the other one? Because mm. it's coming into, into Western Port. It's, um, mm. using, it's using coal to produce hydrogen. And, um, and in fact, the reason is, well, Julia's going to tell us and she's going to tell us why the local people are opposed to it, mm. even though the government and, and industry are saying it's the most wonderful development. So that's the first half. We'll go to her pretty shortly, actually. Okay. And um, the, other, um, the other event... The other uh, interview in the second half is with the um, another one of our regulars, Dave Sweeney, the mm. anti-nuclear campaigner with the mm. Australian Conservation Foundation. Two items this week. One is that the the um, reclamation of the Ranger uranium mine up in the Northern Territory has been extended, and mm. I thought it may well have been that it was uh, they were trying to put it off and delay it and obfuscate. But, Seems uh, to be the the way yeah. that it's dealt with usually. That's right. Yeah. But, but Dave tells me it's actually, and I hate to do this on City Limits, but it's actually a good news story. So oh, what? When he, yeah, when he said that, I in fact thought perhaps <laughs> we should re- have another look at the yeah. interview and uh, yes, review the interview. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe and we the, can find somebody else. It's right. not too late. <laughs> and the second thing is that the European Commission is debating a proposal for their clean energy program for the future and there's a debate taking place because there's a debate about whether uranium and gas should be included as part of the clean energy future. Uh, and it's um, it's causing divisions there, which Dave is going to talk about as well. He also wants to talk, speaking of Meg Kimber being here, about Kimber. The, Not me, um, though, sadly. The, uh, sadly. Well, sadly yeah. in this case, again, because it's yeah. the site that was chosen in South Australia, as we know, for a nuclear waste dump here in Australia. But Dave tells me that during the recent rains, it flooded and, and showed that if it was there, it would have been very dangerous indeed. So Very concerning. And very concerning <laughs> about the stuff that's happening in Europe, talking about nuclear as a, you know, this I, this narrative that's gaining a bit of traction about nuclear as a climate safe um, option. Because I think the Australian government only needs whatever kind of little excuse it can to... Um, yeah, try to push that here even yeah. more. Yeah. I think the decision to, about the nuclear submarines has certainly given new life to the uranium mm. and nuclear movement, unfortunately, mm. and they really, they really kicked up. Mm. Just before we go to Julia, though, I just want to ask you one thing, because mm. I know an, an area you've been interested in since you've been on the program mm. uh, is the establishment of a federal mm-hmm. corruption body, anti-corruption body. And Excuse me, I'm going to cough. Um, and this week, Makaya Cash, the... Um, the Attorney General said that even though it was a promise before the last election, <laughs> she now says they can't do it because they haven't got time before the next election. <laughs> and so it's more important that they do the things so, so, so religious people can't be discriminated against. Oh, Ki- my gosh. Yes. Trans, trans kids can. But, oh, my uh, gosh. Do you want to comment on that uh, um, situation at all? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of something sort of ironic I can say, but I can't think of anything, Kevin. I feel like I don't want to tread on your turf. But um, to be sincere, I think that they um, were pressured into making the promise before the last election and because there was like crossbench um, pressure and, and even the Labor Party had said that they would put in an ICAC, um, anti-corruption body, federal anti-corruption body. And then uh, I... I don't want to sound cynical, but I don't think they ever wanted to make that um, Gee, body. Yeah. Well, they drew up a wonderful, um, wonderful <laughs> bill, which in fact had, had no teeth, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> so something with absolutely no power. <laughs> yeah. In in fact, it is a bit odd that they. I think they did try to pass that and couldn't pass it because it was so pathetic, wasn't it? Yeah. They, yeah. They, they, so. they, 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 people wanted to keep throwing it back and because <laughs> they wanted one that worked. Yeah, yeah. Giving it the odd the odd tooth. Yeah. Um, just two other small things before we go. I did want to comment 
Sam Groth, who's a very ordinary ex-tennis player, who had a very fast serve, but that was it. Once they worked out his serve, he lost every match. But um, he wrote a story in the middle of the Djokovic affair. Djokovic affair. And he, he laid the blame totally on the Andrews government. And he said that really the government is so bad it's got to go. Right. Writing it, as the Herald Sun said in the column it had, that he was a former tennis player. Uh. Uh, therefore, he was qualified to comment on the Andrews government having to go. That what makes they sense. didn't mention, and which had been mentioned sometime earlier yeah. as a news item, Sam, in fact, is running as a Liberal candidate in the next state election. What? Uh, or he's, he's seeking endorsement by the Liberal Party to run in the next state election. <laughs> but the, the article that... Had, wow. had Sam saying the Andrews government's got to go, just forgot in the Herald Sun to mention that Sam is a potential Liberal Party candidate for the election. Oh, that is so that bad. Worth, I thought that just worth that commenting on. That is actually on. really bad. Yeah. Um, and the only other one this week I thought worth commenting on um, was the reaction in Australia to that Amnesty International 182-page report showing that um, Israel is a, a, um, a country that practices apartheid. Yeah. Um, and the response from our government was that our Prime Minister said, no country is perfect, was his response. Wow. And he went on to, to, to give Australia's total support. Australia has been one of the closest, strongest friends of Israel of any nation in the world other than the United States. No country is perfect, but I can assure you that Australia and my government in particular will remain a staunch friend of Israel. And the opposition spokesperson, Penny Wong, said she disagreed with the use of apartheid. Um, So great response from our governments. Gosh. Hey, are you going to say anything about the housing event tonight? Well, the housing event tonight, there is the cart thing. We could play that and that probably tells you all about it. But we do urge people to go to it because it's important. And uh, it's a great event for people concerned about housing issues to have Mm -hmm. a say because there's going to be plenty of chance for people to have a say. It's an online event, Housing Justice After Lockdown. And if you Google Rahu online... Online forum, you should be able to find That's it. Right. And we'll I, play I got the dragged content. into the other studio last week after the show <laughs> to do a bit of a promotion <laughs> for it, so uh, it's been that. getting played. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, we'll take a break, come back, we'll talk to Julia Slockett about what's happening out at Hastings. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood, or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the Decade Zero and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Let's bounce back with sustainability in 2022. Head to slf.org.au for the full details. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter.
Forest City Arts presents Music in Exile at Curtin Square this Sunday, February 13th. Come along from 6pm to 8pm for a Yarra Staycation in Carlton North featuring the soulful, funky, Afrobeat-infused music of Ajak Kawai and Camille Elfagali with Rayan, who will take you on a boundary-redefining classical and electronic journey through the Middle East and North Africa. For all Yarra Staycation events, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. Okay, on the line we have Julia Stockard from the... Um the, the camp from, well, it's probably, say, Western Port, but it's the group down at Hastings that's now got another struggle on its hands. Julie, Julia, we congratulated you last year over the victory at preventing the AGL um, uh, liquid, no, liquefied natural, natural gas, say it properly, Kevin, LNG proposal. <laughs> um, that now last week we saw a ship come in and take out hydrogen, liquid hydrogen to Japan, which had been made from brown coal down in the Latrobe Valley. This is a trial run to see if it becomes commercially viable. But why isn't there an EES into this one? Because surely it's going to have an impact on the environment. Yeah, well, well we're, really, um, we're really surprised at this project too. It was announced um, a few years ago. So it's a consortium from Japan combined, uh, so Kawasaki and a few other companies, and uh, backed by the Australian and uh, Victorian government, so they put a lot of money into it as well. Um, yeah, so they're, they're making hydrogen from brown coal. This is meant to be... They're calling it a green hydrogen project, uh, a sustainable energy project, which, of course, hydrogen, you know, may be a fuel of the future, but... Uh, certainly, there are other ways to produce it uh, that are much more sustainable than uh, deriving it from brown coal, which is what uh, they're they're doing with this project. Um, yeah, so we've known for a few years that this uh, project, or the pilot stage, the testing stage of the hydrogen energy supply chain project, would be uh, involving the Port of Hastings. So. Uh, yeah, they're shipping shipping the hydrogen out um, of Victoria from the Port of Hastings in Western Port Pay to Japan. And uh, the State Minister for Planning, Minister Wynne, called it in as an essential service for Victoria, <laughs> which enabled uh, the project to bypass the regulations and the public um, opportunity to comment and the, um, yeah, the environmental assessments. Of, of an environmental effect. So effectively, you're right. The community's right to object to this has been taken away by the minister. Absolutely. There's no there's no public consultation. There's no opportunity to comment or to view the plans, which is what um, we went through with the AGL oh. uh, proposal, which we went through an exhaustive mm. um, environmental mm. assessment. And just interrupting again, but AGL is one of the partners in this proposal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so they're really involved in this. They have, they are, um, they are, ha- actually have denote, donated all of the coal for the um, <clears throat> for the pilot project. So this is, um, you know, this is meant to be a a great new opportunity for um, for Victoria to be able to use its brown coal, which is the most um, 
you know, the least efficient and the most polluting form of coal that there is. And it's too dirty and dangerous to be used in um, electricity production anymore. So I don't think they can really give it away. But so <sighs> the state government, the federal government, are very keen to keep a market happening for this coal for as long as they can. So they're hoping that this will pan out into um, that coal gasification in the production of hydrogen will be, uh, you know, a viable way to produce this otherwise sustainable fuel, which, of course, can be made from water with the only um, emission being oxygen. Mm. Exactly. But, of course, on that last point you made about the coal being useless, uh, Keith Pitt, the Resources Minister, probably let the cat out of the bag a bit. He said it was an important step to find a new use for coal from the Latrobe Valley. So Mm. he sees it as just that. Yeah, yeah. So it's such a poor... Um, quality source of energy. It has really low energy content and there's virtually no international market for it as a resource. So, you know, they're really trying to to desperately find a new use for it. And, of course, you know, um, with that, they're promising 30,000 new jobs with this project. But this whole project, um, of course, this is only the, the test stage, the pilot stage, but for it, if it is to proceed to its um, to its commercial stage, it relies on carbon capture and storage technology to capture the emissions. Which you know, the coal gasification process um, produces. Um, well, I think they used 160 uh, tons of coal to produce just two tons of hydrogen, and it produced 100 tons of emissions in this pilot. Mm. And the carbon and capture storage component of it is never been proved up. It's never been made commercially viable, even though um, Australian governments and world governments and fossil fuels companies have been mm. sinking money into carbon and capture storage um, research for you know years now. Yeah. Trying well, to well get the biggest it. proposal is Chevron's Gorgon one out in Western Australia, and it's had massive troubles. Yeah, and it's still and it's still struggling to get the thing to work. Yeah, yeah. So this is um, it's it's really strange to be basing the whole project on that. Mm. Um, they haven't tried to capture any of the emissions in this pilot project. They've just um, bought um, carbon offsets. So um, the purchase of carbon offsets is meant it's you know made to try and uh, make. This is why they think they can call it a clean energy project because they've brought um, uh, some you know, put fund, funding mm. towards some tree planting progr- program in, in Queensland. Mm. But Victoria gets the emissions, meanwhile, and uh, meanwhile they're, they're, uh, they have a drilling rig off 90 Mile Beach now in the Carbon carbon Net Project, which is drilling deep below the Bass Strait seabed. Trying, well, it's only a kilometre offshore, I think, the drilling rig. But they are trying to... Um, to uh, inject. Well, what they do is they wash the emissions or scrub the emissions. So there's methane, uh, carbon monoxide, sulfates, and a lot of um, toxins. Those so toxic cocktails washed with water and injected deep below the seabed. But they still have never proved up this technology to to uh, to, to show that it's a very that it's a reliable way to store emissions. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very concerning for people down on 90 Mile Beach and there's there's a lot of different um, 
aspects of this project that we're really concerned about. But you know, there's local local um, problems too because you know the the sort of um, hydrogen tankers that they would be wanting to bring into the Port of Hastings uh, would dwarf anything that's here and require dredging. Um, and it would bring, you know, the risk of marine pests, which is a huge risk with uh, commercial shipping, because um, the wood chip ships that came out here in the 1980s and 90s introduced um, the worst um, species of invasive marine pest into Port Phillip Bay and into Tasmania's mm. Derwent River estuary, and that's just decimated the um, marine life there. So Western Port Bay doesn't have... Um, marine pests and we want to keep it that way. We want to learn from past mistakes and make sure that the that those same things don't happen. So we've been lobbying Kawasaki who is the partner in this hydrogen energy supply, supply chain project to uh, monitor for marine pests and do some baseline studies to prove that there is no marine pests in Western Port and we want an environmental bond so that if there's any uh, damage caused from the um, from you know the, them carrying out this, this project in Western Port Bay, the export side of it, um, that that the um, the marine life could be rehabilitated because there's just um, really decimating effects. So they refused our request, um, but we applied for a, a, a Commonwealth grant and we received a grant and were able to organise our own um, survey for marine pests. So we no uh, none of the most voracious Voracious species were found, which was great, and uh, and also that put pressure on Kawasaki, who has now agreed to uh, do some monitoring at Blue Scope Pier because that's um, that's the site that he's hosting the the export trial. That's where the ship came into um, in February, mm. the hydrogen ship from Japan, and uh, mm. but yes, it's uh, it's interesting that we there's a, a new article in. Um, a, a, a Renew Economy article that, that shows that um, only one tonne of hydrogen of the two more than two tonnes that were um, that were shipped out a few weeks ago uh, came from this project. Anyway, the, the rest of it had to be bought from another project because um, they didn't have enough. So it, it's sort of fake hydrogen that they're filling up the ship and taking to Japan. Mm. Anyway, so I mean. Yeah, it's just the whole thing is just uh, really, it, it just makes no sense at all. Well, there's also been reports from international bodies that this is the most expensive way to transport hydrogen, that um, there are far cheaper ways. You could have ammonia or even LNG, we wouldn't support that, but, uh, but you could turn it into ammonia and do it much more cheaply. But transporting hydrogen this way has enormous costs. Um, which probably make almost make the whole thing uneconomical anyway, and you lose a fair bit of it in even despite the fact you're keeping it at minus two hundred and whatever it is forty three degrees or something. Mm. Um, it's you still lose a lot of it in running. Yeah, and that the the hydrogen ship um, that that they um, that they propo- that they propose and the one that, that the trial one that they brought that came in. Um, last month was they're actually diesel ships they're not run on hydrogen or at all but yeah that the cost of of um of taking it down to minus 250 degrees whatever um to make it into its um liquid state and transporting it across uh you know international 
oceans, it's just ridiculous. I mean, the to to be viable as a as a fuel of the future, hydrogen will need to be competitive. And countries that are seeking or that and that will be seeking to um, to really uh, expand their hydrogen project programs will be doing so because they want to be uh, because of carbon restrained economies you know mm. so the the uh, it, the it, you know the excessive cost of transporting is just going to make um hydrogen uh, from coal and shipping it around the world completely unviable so it doesn't make sense anyway you look at it yeah and also of course um the the despite the fact that um that it's all unproven, um, and, and the governments are supporting it to the hilt, to the even to the point where the federal and state governments have put fifty million dollars each into it up to this stage, and that's over and above earlier contributions. Mm. Uh, and also above that, the federal government is putting another twenty million into the carbon net project to uh, develop the the burying the head in the sand bit, the, the burying it. Yes. So there's there's millions and millions of public money going to what's being run by six major corporations. Yeah, and that's our money. I mean, this is money that is that should be going towards research for truly sustainable energy mm. forms, really um, true green hydrogen, because the, the hydrogen economy, it has um, several colours, like there's green hydrogen, which is produced by... Um, you know, truly sustainable means. Mm. And then there's um, brown hydrogen, which is the opposite end of the scale, which is produced using brown coal. And then there are different colours in between. Now, they're claiming that this project is a blue hydrogen project because it's um, going to be looking at using carbon uh, storage, capture and storage technology. But to call it that at this stage is a little bit premature. And I think it's really, you know, like it's very, um, it seems really overly hopeful for uh, Angus, Minister Angus Taylor, Taylor. to be be saying, uh, to be, you know, um, investing more money into carbon capture and storage, which was announced, you know, with the, they made a big deal out of this, um, out of this initial hydrogen shipping trial because it was the first time, you know, that such a ship had done this, this kind of cross-ocean transporting of hydrogen, which is a momentous thing, I suppose. I suppose one day if we, if we need and we can um, produce hydrogen sustainably, then, you know, it, it may be needed to, to uh, you know, transfer, uh, you know, to transition away from fossil fuels. But, um, mm. but yeah, the, the carbon and capture storage element of it just seems uh, like some more of the same, and the money they're spending on that really is, should be going towards um, sustainable energy development. Yeah, your mate Angus Taylor did say last week carbon dioxide from this process will be permanently and safely stored in a reservoir under the Bass Strait. You you don't quite agree with that one, Julia? There's just no way that he can make those claims. There's just absolutely no basis. In fact, nothing to support that, and it's very very. Um, hopeful of him, I think, to to be, uh, you know, investing our money in that and to be saying so, um, you know, vehemently that he thinks that it's a safe uh, method. It hasn't been proven and every every uh, project that's tried to do so um, has had to return the funding or it's been cancelled or, 
you know, there's it's n- never been a success. So, mm. yeah. And of course, as you say, we, we support the idea of clean hydrogen, um, hydrogen being developed from renewable sources, but this ain't the, the way to do it. No, this is, there's, not, there's not good science in this. And certainly there needs to be a lot of money put towards, you know, energy transition and, you know, just just energy transition as well for people in in the Latrobe Valley, the people that work there, they deserve to have, you know, good um, good opportunities in, in, you know, carbon-constrained economy. But um, that's where this money should be going, not towards, uh, you know, just prolonging the fossil fuels. Yeah. We've got to wind up, unfortunately, but... Um, any final comments or where you take it from here? What you well, can look, we're do? going to be keeping a close eye on it. Um, we're, we're asking for an environmental bond. We ask for the project's commercial stage to be scrapped because uh, hydrogen from dirty brown coal is event- environmentally unsustainable and it's, uh, it's unviable and ridiculous. So, um, yeah, we, we've asked that, uh, we're asking for that, but... We, we hope that um, we can spread the word and get the word out there. And, you know, if people want more, um, more information on this, they can go to savewestsupport.org and uh, Western Port Peninsula Protection Council. All right, and people should also bombard Wynn and let mm. him know we think there should be a full EES um, into this thing. Absolutely, a full EES into the commercial stage because uh, that's what the Mornington Peninsula Shire Council actually came out and um last year, I think, and, and said that they, they actually demanded an EES into all the impacts of this project to be looked at locally and, um, and also the, the, whole, the whole project rationale, yeah. OK, Julie, look, we'll have to finish that for today, but I think we'll be talking to you again because this ain't going to finish here, I don't think. But, um, but, look, thanks for your time today and good luck with the campaign. All right, thanks a lot, Kevin. Thanks, Julie. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, well, Meg, another yeah. one. Uh, I mean, that's re- isn't it dreadful that... Uh, oh. Although um, some people, in fact, Julia the other day said to me on the, mm. privately on the phone, you know, some people suspect that AGL, in fact, went through mm. the previous process as a trial run for this one and the and government's given them what they want without an EES. Yeah, so, because it um, looks extremely like that would be something that would happen because they had an unprecedented success at when they managed to stop the gas um, offshore yeah, gas processing yeah. plant happening and then um, and then this one's going That's ahead right. without it, without the ability for people to provide feedback. That's right, you have a win but then they come <sighs> again. That is so disappointing. <laughs> and yeah, it is. I mean, power okay. to them and anyone who's listening like yeah make your voice heard on this well sadly i think um, if when we talk to dave sweeney after this break mm. we may have to have a good news story but <laughs> 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 we'll see okay let's see what take a break dave sweeney says. after this break a proud black man proud black man you should not wonder strong spirit first nation issues families people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Hi, you're listening to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. This is our track crossover, which is a tribute and a um, honoured song for my late mother, Agnes Donovan.
Okay, and um, as that fades away, um, not fading away, hopefully anyway, is <laughs> Dave Sweeney. <laughs> and um, Dave, of course, is the anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation, a regular on this program. And Dave, you're on again already this year because last week it was announced that the rehabilitation of the Kakadu mine up in the Northern Territory, um, would um, the Ranger mine, would take uh, longer than originally planned. But you tell me, and I've warned listeners about this, that this is actually a good news story. Yeah, hello, Kevin, and hello, Meg, and welcome to 22, season 22. <laughs> I just treat you and all of us yeah, gently. Here we go again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it actually is. We've spoken about this one a bit over, over recent years, and um, the arc of, of, of the situation at Kakadu, at Ranger Mine, is, has been consistently good and continues to go that way. Kevin, that doesn't mean that it's not complex. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Like, they've, they've got a job there, the Mining Company Energy Resources of Australia and its parent company, 86% shareholder, Rio Tinto. They've had four years of imposed, highly impactful, highly damaging mining activities, uranium mining in a, in a World Heritage-listed area. So it's a big job to clean it up. One of the things that we've been saying that in that civil society and environment groups and um, that particularly the traditional owners and the Mirar people have been saying is that uh, this is going to take more time and it's going to cost more money to do it properly. And uh, that has been finally and sort of formally recognised by the company. They went into a share trading halt while they did a sort of re-forecast of costs and expectations and works, and they came back and said, we need more time and we need more money. The money aspect of this, is um, really a significant... They had budgeted a billion dollars to spend on this clean-up, Kevin. Um, they're now saying that that could be up to $2.2 billion, so like a 100% increase in the cost of that rehabilitation. And they've also said that they'll need at least two to three more years um, to the end of this decade to um, do the clean-up. Um, and so those things are really important because what's significant now, why it's a good news story, is that it actually, you couldn't have done um, a good enough, anywhere near good enough job with the money and time allocated. And so what's necessary now is the time is done, the money is spent, the work is done for a comprehensive rehabilitation. And this is a really significant next step in that work. It's close to Indigenous communities. What, what happens to them in the meantime? Well, the, the, most of the work at the moment is sort of it's physical uh, landforming and, and, and uh, equipment removing work confined pretty much to the Ranger project area. So um, 
that hasn't that's not having a day-to-day impact on on local communities obviously it pivotal to be sorted otherwise it'll be a forever running sore with really significant potential impacts um but the the local uh traditional owners have been really strong and clear all the way through on this and they have very much come out and welcomed the certainty that the extra money and the the push of the extra time, and there's still some work needs to be done. Then there will need to be an act, a change to a federal act to allow extra time because they're quite time mandated. They got to finish by January 2026 with the rehabilitation. That's not time enough. That needs to be formally extended. So there's a lot of detail still to go. But the sort of take home is that after a long fight from a community to get a really polluting industry they never wanted off their country, mm. they've stopped that mine, they've stopped the prospect of new mines on their country. They and others collectively have worked to get uh, a, a mining company to do what looks like the opposite to what is so often the case of, of just stop mining and then exit quietly. They're actually spending two billion bucks to clean this up and to try and reduce some of the trouble and the impact they've caused over the past four decades. So that's really significant. I suppose a little bit of a sense of the positive transition or movement of things too, Kevin and Meg, is um, yesterday up in Jabiru, that's a town near Ranger Mine, um, town that's transitioning from being a mining support town to a, a regional cultural and tourism centre. But yesterday, uh, Michael Gunner, the Chief Minister at the NT, cut the ribbon on a um, new uh, solar plant. It's got mm. diesel backup, but very rarely used predominantly solar plant, big new funky batteries for the town and the area to take over from the diesel-generated plant from the old mine. Um, and what this is is now like what was an imposed industrial uranium mining economy is now more and more moving to like an economy based around rehabilitation, transition, renewable energy, cultural aspects, tourism. It's, um, it is a good news story, but you'll be pleased at least to keep that belief with some sense of the city limit tone and theme is that there are many problematic details and, you know, by, and tricky bypaths. Oh, thank God for that. Oh, pew. Dave, that is, such, that is a good news story. It is good to hear about solar energy being and, and batteries being used in, in the Northern Territory. That sounds like it would be such a good way to go. I, I'm curious about how the rehabilitation actually happens. It's going to take at least four years and they want an extension longer than that. Is that like every day, four years for the, all those years that, that this will work will be happening? Yeah, it's stage sort of work. Um, right. And what the company's doing now is saying, OK, this was the plan we had for the short cleanup, and this is our preferred plan for the longer cleanup. So they're looking to see what is you know, transferable or common to both and all that sort of stuff. So, But every day there are boots on the ground and there's people doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is, is tracking... The, the holding, like a, a lot of stuff about consolidating contaminants, consolidating mm. contaminated areas and concentrating them and sort of reducing them and trying to find a way to encapsulate or manage them. So there's a lot of um, sort of tracking of movement of groundwater and surface mm. water and lots of tracking about contaminant flows, lots of looking at how re- revegetation is going. There's lots of equipment being put into an old pit 
Um, so there's lots of physical work too and there's draining of ponds and consolidating of the gunk at the bottom and then relocating that to a central gunk point. Mm. So there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of things um, and it's busy and it's significant. You know, like you imagine it, uh, uh, what was already going to be a $1 billion spend is a $2 billion spend. So for people with hard hats and, and you know, white light trucks, uh, mm. white Toyotas, that's a lot of people with them and flags doing their stuff. So mm. there is work there um, routinely, Meg. Um, mm. It's going it's to be really complicated work to try and control the movement of what's being scattered around like, um, you know, the, the pink stain in the cat in the hat and to try and control and contain that movement over time. Um, so it's not just it doesn't just become this r- literal running saw mm. into Kakadu waterways. Um, Kevin raised the point earlier about you know Aboriginal communities, and that's that is a real concern. The concern about you know ensuring that there's there's no or really limited movement of contaminants into water and food chain. On that point, Dave, you've raised on this program before the problem of the tailings dam being close to waterways that go to other communities. Is that still a problem? Yeah, it is a problem. And, you know, like that's the biggest problem. Well, one, it's right up there with the top list problems of, of uranium mining. Uh, Kevin, you've, you've mm. concentrated and moved out from where it's been geologically stable and crushed and pulverised and then made bioavailable, like mm. a radioactive material. It's, a, it's now a, a generally low-level but persistent contaminant. And... Um, yeah, so, and there's massive volumes of it. So that is a, a really big problem. And that's a really big problem right across the board. It's a, it's a problem and a concern at operating mines, like at the Olympic Dam mine, the big BHP mine in South Australia. Like we're really concerned about what these recent floods in South Australia, heavy rainfall events might mean for the structural integrity of the BHP mines. And so wherever you go in this trade, toxic trade, tailings pop up again and again as a real issue. And I suppose what it is is that it's that long-term, it's that long-term thinking, you know, like when, when a mining company goes, we want to extract uranium and this is the market price, mm. I don't spend a lot of time saying, well, that will then mean there'll be 40,000 years of this persistent, you know, carcinogenic material left behind. Mm. And on that point, is Rio Tinto... Um, paying the extra 1.2 billion out of their money, or are they asking for it from the government along with really, an extension? Really good question. Um, not from the government. Mm. Um, it's the, it's a company and corporate sort of responsibility, but mm. the mechanism for paying it hasn't been really worked out yet. <laughs> like so, they've said we will pay it. So that's something that's good. Yeah. But there's sort of all these um, you know complexities because Rio Tinto own 86 percent. They don't own 100 percent. Um, you know, is there other financing, leveraging, this and that consideration? Mm. That's their business to work out. I suppose from the perspective of civil society groups, Meg, our view is that um, you benefited and you mm. made the impact, so you now have to pay the cost. This mm. shouldn't be cost-shifted as a as a repair burden to mm. the Australian public or mm. taxpayers. Um, that's a last resort, not a first option. Mm. Um, so the company pay it. You work out any way that you pay it that makes sense to your people, but just don't scrimp. Mm. Make sure it's there and provide certainty. So I'm not a financial expert. I imagine there's people in Rio Tinto and elsewhere who are, (laughs) and um, they can do that stuff. What I want to make sure is play my role in saying that they do it, 
that they play it, you know, they do the full payment on time, up front with certainty. And I suppose the key point is there was an extra hit of certainty just recently with Brio Tinto making the announcement that they fully supported um, the, the revised cleaner. Mm. Oh, well, that's. That's a good news story, but um, let's hope anyway. Let's hope it is a good news story and it yeah. goes ahead as hoped. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the rains. I was going to come to it third, but we'll go second. Um, the the proposed nuclear waste dump at Kimber, the the impact of the recent floods, and um, and is it still possible to prevent that happening? Not the floods, the uh, Kimber development. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. Do you control the weather, Dave? Standing on a hill and stretching my arms out. Um, Doing my God bit, yeah. (laughs) No, that's not going to happen, Kevin. Um, In relation to uh, the rain, yeah, like a lot of listeners will know, it's been Central um, Australia and Northern South Australia heavily, heavily um, impacted by rain, really big rains in in the recent weeks. And... um, Large areas of country cut off and communities cut off and the highway, Stewart Highway and the, and the central rail line and all that has been cut or compromised. And, um, yeah, Kimber has not um, just, uh, been unscathed by that. Um, Kimber's, like, a couple of hours west of Port Augusta at the top of the Air Peninsula in regional South Australia has been slated, as you said, by the federal government as a site for a highly controversial national radioactive waste dump and store. And um, and it got heavily rained on. It was the most heavily um, rained area of that um, of that part of the Air Peninsula. And, um, yes, so there was lots of photos, lots of social media stuff, lots of phone calls and talking with people about which roads are, are flooded and cut and there's significant damage to infrastructure in the town and around, particularly around the region. So, yeah, it does, you know, we were saying at the time that it's sort of nature's way of calling for a project review, you know. (laughs) Um, The grain growers who live there and and generate the money of the region don't want it. The Aboriginal people, the Bungalow people who own the country and have just fought hard to get their native title rights don't want it. A lot of civil society groups and, and, and independent sort of agencies question its need or don't want it. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, comes an unprecedented, you know, that word again, one in 200 now, one in 200 year event mm. that, you know, sheets the country with water and, you know, maybe that's nature's way of saying. So, like, they will say that this is an unprecedented time. They will say that there's an ability to, you know, we can over-engineer everything and put up funded areas in the unlikely incident. So I don't think rainfall event will dissuade the government from its intention, Kevin. But you asked the second part of your question was, can it be stopped? Mm. Um, And the answer to that is utterly, absolutely it can. Mm. It absolutely can. This is is live and in play now. And if you look at it, like it's been going on a long time and a lot of people are sort of like, uh, you know, uh, either... Um, you know, a bit weary or wondering what next and all of that. But these fights, as you well know, often do. They often just Mm. take quite long periods of time to play out. Where this is at now is that the government has made the decision of what it wants to do. It wants to bury low-level waste and store for an indefinite period of time intermediate-level waste at Kimber. So they've made that decision. They've now acquired the land, but now... um, 
that decision uh, is being challenged by the by the bungalow traditional owners in the federal court. They're contesting that siding decision. Now that'll probably be sort of heard maybe March, April. Um, so there's that whole legal uncertainty and challenge. There's a South Australian state election in March. There's a federal election in the first half of this year. Now neither of those are. Uh, they, they both play a bit of a role in the positioning of parties and parties' viewpoints because South Australian Labor are opposed to the federal plan. Um, there's also two sets of licensing that this facility will require. It'll require separate licences for low and intermediate level management of waste and it'll require them from uh, the Federal Environment Department, so the Environment Minister through that EPBC, the Environmental Assessment Process, and in parallel to that, it will also require an approval for, from the, the boss, the CEO of a, the Federal Nuclear Regulator, an agency called ARPANSA, the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency. Now, ARPANSA will also need to approve both of those low-level and intermediate-level facilities. And that approval will take... Uh, like they'll try and harmonise it. They've been working together to streamline it, all that language. But it will still take at least nine, probably 12 months to advance. And that paperwork is, hasn't been actively advanced yet. It will be starting now. But it's effectively the take-home message is that this is a decision of the next government, um, whether this facility goes ahead. Because yeah. as coming into the next election, it is a government plan and policy but it's not licensed, it's not approved, it faces legal hurdles and political uncertainty. And we're arguing that you put all that together with the very clear fact that in this one we actually do have a very credible plan B, which is that the 95% of Australia's intermediate level waste is generated and stored at the ANSO nuclear site in Sydney and their best place to manage it till we know what we're doing in the long term. We don't move it twice. We don't double handle yeah. it. Dave, the, um, uh, the, the, you cook at low level waste, but there was a, we know that since the nuclear sub deal, um, the, the nuclear lobby has resurrected itself pretty much and got new life. Um, recently, one of, the, one of the proponents of nuclear energy came out and said that Australia simply must go ahead with uranium mining, looking at, um, at, at, nuclear energy and in fact we've all you know we can then store the waste at kimber so they're not talking about low level there presumably anyway and, they, and yet the lobby itself says kimber can now be used for all nuclear waste yeah that's i've, I've noticed that as well i saw in a, a defense magazine uh last late last month there was a reference to exactly that um you know, there was an opinion commentary piece by someone saying exactly that. And, you know, we're building this facility now. So that's just, uh, you know, the door opener. Mm. And that is a really that is a really significant concern. A really significant concern in this, you know, the, the management of radioactive waste is, you know, um, the, the, the sense now that there is people actively pushing to really greatly increase the the number and the extent of, of waste streams, and that's particularly through potential with the AUKUS deal and what what happens with those submarines and their, the management of, of their waste and their reactor waste. Um, and if indeed, you know, this whole thing ever happens, there's this whole series of questions there that are driving other concerns. The other one is, as you said, there's, you know, this 
constant chorus of, um, you know, if, if people would just let us get out of the way and build nuclear and go nuclear, um, all will be solved and we've sorted the climate and all will be good. Or <laughs> their sort of fellow travellers are like, well, we, we won't build the existing nuclear because it doesn't work and it costs a lot of money and it's risky, but we will, because just around the corner are small modular reactors which will save us. So we don't really need to do anything much because that technology is going to arrive really soon and save us. Um, so collectively this strong push for uh, increased nuclear potential opportunity, development, funding, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and that lobby is, is pretty eternal and at the moment pretty strong. Um, I don't think they're going to carry the day. There's so many internal contradictions with cost, risk, better alternatives, etc. but they are vociferous, they're loud and connected. And so there is a real concern that, you know, this project, if it ever got up, would only creep. And then you imagine, you could imagine, you know, that if it crept out more and more, it's not uh, very long bows to revisit those ideas of, you know, there's money and muck and we should host the world's waste. And, and we become increasingly sort of embedded in a really in a really toxic, both politically toxic, but also like ecologically toxic industry and set of relationships. So, you know, it's an important time for us where, as a nation, we, we're exiting uranium mining. You know, we've been, we were going to be the Saudi Arabia of uranium and all these things for so long, and we're exiting it, mm. you know. And the Ranger story is a really clear example of that. Um, so we don't want to be... Um, now opening the door to like irresponsible or cavalier radioactive waste management or you know being a soft touch for public funding for any carpet bagger who says i've got a new reactor design yeah dave we've only got a couple of minutes the other thing we did want to talk about though was this dispute taking place at the european commission um the european union uh where there's a dispute around their, their new proposals for going ahead with um, green taxonomy, they're calling it, but there's a dispute between nations about whether uranium and gas should be included as part of their green energy proposals. So we've only got a couple of minutes, but can you comment on that? Yeah, it's actually a really significant one. So the European taxonomy, says the, you know, outlines for, as for financial investment advice and guidance in particular, outlines technologies that are seen as, you know, either climate-friendly or climate-neutral. Um, and there has been this big fight. There's been a big push by France in particular, has led the charge along with a bunch of the more central and eastern uh, nations, Poland, Hungary, Czech, Bulgaria. Um, they've sort of coalesced around having nuclear and gas, and particularly nuclear in the case of France, adopted in the green taxonomy and a bunch of other nations as you can imagine, um, have taken a different view. Germany, Denmark, Austria, Spain and others are in that camp. And there's been a strongly divided position. As it is now, the, it's gone into a... It came through a technical route rather than a popular political route. So it came through a joint research commission report which then went to a task force, which then went, which then went to, uh, you know, all sorts of the ways up through, almost through a bureaucratic mechanism... And now it's landed, and it's landed in the Parliament or to the Commission, and the, it now needs a parliamentary, the European Parliament, to ratify it. But it's effectively got a head of steam up, and and because it's come through that at that administrative process, Kevin, that means that a parliamentary rejection of it 
is actually quite hard because it's, a, it's not just a split majority vote. I think it has to be 70 or 80% to reject because it's come through the internal process. So it's a highly technical set of rules to guide particularly private investment decision. It's really unhelpful to have gas and nuclear given a legitimacy stamp as sustainable or mm. as green because they're utterly not, like so utterly not. A lot of people are really angry uh, about greenwashing and the demeaning or the undermining of the integrity of the European standards. Um, so it's a big issue. The Parliament's got four months to consider it. As, like I said, it'll be hard in one sense politically to knock it over, even though there's a lot of countries that don't like it, but there's also Austria uh, and Germany uh, looking at um, uh, taking legal action and challenging... Mm this in the European court. So I think it's got a long way to play. It's bad news. It is bad news for us and for a responsible energy future, mm. but it has got a long way to play. And it might be in some way, like this might be glass half full, but it might be a case of longer term damaging optics rather than fundamentally changing the nature of the industry. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there, Dave, unfortunately, because we're out of time. But look, thanks for your time again. Thank you, oh, Dave. And um, no doubt goes on. We'll talk again through the year, Dave. There's no question of that. Okay, hope so. All the best till then. Thanks, thanks mate. Okay, Dave. Dave Sweeney there, who's the um, anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. Meg, it is your last program. We're going to have to say, but thank yourself for all you've done over the years. <laughs> and you've, you've been a wonderful contributor to this program. And we hope we will get you back. It's just a hiatus. I hope so. And if, I, yeah, if you ever need me, I'm happy to drop in. But um, I, it's meant so much to me to do City Limits. I've learned a huge amount from you, Kevin, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what you've learned from me. But anyway. <laughs> I mean, what not to do, if you know what I mean. Next week, next week is housing on City Limits. We've got housing next week. And uh, we've got to talk to Kate Shaw about what's happened in Germany. Cool. Finally, yeah. Cool. All right. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.